Now entering Nerdist.com. The Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, Episode 2, The Man Trap. Greetings, fellow cadets, and welcome to another edition of The Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Ken Ray. And I am your other host, John Champion. Each week, we delve deep into an episode from the plethora of Star Trek stories, figuring out what the messages are, whether they're still applicable today, and decide whether the messages in the episode stand the test of time. Fun week this week. We're, uh, we're meeting the crew that we know and love, because last week there were a bunch of strangers walking around the Enterprise. <laughs> this week, though, you, you got your Kirk, you got your Bones, you got your Spock, you got your Uhura. Don't get used to Crewman Darnell, though. He'll break your heart. <laughs> and John, I understand you actually have a bit of trivia for this week's episode. I do. I, I like to look into trivia about each episode. Just a few nuggets for you this week. Uh, this story is by George Clayton Johnson, and I'm a big fan that he was the uh, co-author of Logan's Run. Renew. Uh, novel. Renew. Yes, <laughs> with William F. Nolan and uh, later the uh, the film from 1976. But he is best known for a number. I believe he did about seven Twilight Zone episodes. Some well-known ones. Uh, Penny for Your Thoughts, Kick the Can, among others. And uh, he's also the man behind the story of Ocean's Eleven. So uh, he got some big fat residuals from the uh, later movies. In yeah, the, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, The Man Trap was the first episode to air. It was actually the sixth that they had produced, um, but uh, it, you know, all, all the others were in the can, but this one was the first to air. And uh, part of the reasoning was that the uh, studio executives at the time thought that this was more of a uh, straightforward action story. And that, that is a phrase that we may come back to later as we pick it apart. Um, and one little thing that I noticed, and this was kind of weird, and I'll have to see if later episodes do this too, is that the captain's log actually switches tense. So the very first captain's log that we hear after coming back from the opening credits uh, from after the prologue, um, Kirk basically reveals what is going on. He says that the crew are seeing different versions of Nancy, but he apparently doesn't know anything else about what's going on in the later captain's logs because they are all present tense. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and I'll have to see if that continues in other episodes. Yeah, and the wording also changes a lot when he's doing the captain's log, not just the tense, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's mm -hmm. like captain log update, captain log supplemental. Right. Hey, right. here's another thing for the captain's log. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't seem to have codified uh, how he's going to do that. I know this is going to surprise you, but mm -hmm. uh, I actually have a bit of trivia about I this week's episode as well. Bring yeah. it. Uh, Crewman Darnell as uh, played by an actor named Michael Zaslow, who would go on to play a rapist, clown, stepfather, and tormentor of the town Springfield in the long-running soap opera The Guiding Light. Wow. Yeah, my, my, my summers as a kid were really well spent. <laughs> I'm glad that you caught up on, on all of that. that that's, that's quite the, uh, the, the collection of character traits, rapist, clown, stepfather, tormentor. Yeah, he may have been an industrialist as well. I really can't remember. Because Ooh, even better. While I watched it, I mean, you know, it was, it was a few <laughs> years ago, and my videotape of it finally wore out. 
Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, you can get the complete DVD set one day, I'm sure. All of the Guiding Light ever made starting, with supplemental material. Starting with the radio plays. Yes, and all commentary. The yeah, all the way up to Commentary with Michael Zaslow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sadly, no, off this mortal coil. But uh, So let's, uh, let's, let's raise a salty glass to him and get on with the show. The Mission Log, Mission Log. The crew of the podcast are set to tell the people listening to the podcast what happened on the man trap. Prologue. The Enterprise orbits planet M13, home to the ruins of a long-dead civilization, and Bob and Nancy Crater, there to study the ruins of the long-dead civilization, and then pack them up and ship them out. Nancy is a lost love of Dr. Leonard McCoy, who's down on the planet to give the craters their Starfleet-mandated checkups. To McCoy, Nancy looks like the same just as she did over ten years ago when he last saw her. To Kirk, she's a lovely woman, though a bit mature, and to crewman Darnell, who may as well be wearing a red shirt, she looks like a smoking hot blonde. After saying something completely inappropriate to Nancy Crater, Darnell is dismissed. Nancy goes to find her husband, gives Darnell a come-hither look as she walks past him. Cue the opening credits. Act 1, Bob Crater, Nancy's husband, tells Kirk and McCoy to get lost. Actually, he'd like some salt to deal with the M13 heat. Then Kirk and Bones can get lost. Suddenly a scream. They go to check it out and find Nancy, who now looks as old to Bones as she did to Kirk, standing over a dead crewman Darnell. He's apparently eat something on the uh, planet's surface, some native vegetation, and caught a little case of the dead as a result. On the bridge, we meet science officer and first officer Commander Spock and communications officer Lieutenant Uhura. Spock is an emotionless and humorless Vulcan male. Uhura is vibrant and bored human woman, and maybe a bit randy, too. The away team comes back with the dead Darnell, and Bones says whatever he ate on the planet is not what killed him. Bones also gets lost thinking of how young Nancy looked when he first saw her, which frustrates Kirk because, hi, dead guy on the ship. <laughs> the only thing Bones can find wrong with Darnell at the beginning of Act 2, there's no salt in his body. That rings a bell with uh, Bob Crater having said, gosh, we'd love some salt. Back to the planet they go, where they find Bob Crater alone. Crewman Green, who might as well be wearing a red shirt, goes off to find Nancy. Kirk wants uh, the Craters to come stay on the Enterprise. Bob sneaks off. He finds a dead crewman, tries to get Nancy to come with him with, you guessed it, a handful of salt. But he's frightened off by the approach of Kirk. Nancy, having done Green in, takes his shape and beams up to the Enterprise with Kirk and Bones. Now he, she, it is wandering the ship, looking for salty morsels. After stumbling in and out of Sulu's botanical garden, Green turns black. He sees Uhura. He reads her deepest desires and turns into the man of her dreams. But she's called to the bridge. No snack for him. Dissatisfied, the shapeshifter stumbles across a guy who looks like a beekeeper but might as well be wearing a red shirt. He gets the salt sucked clean out of him. Which sounds dirty, but it's really not. Worried over <laughs> Nancy, Bones can't sleep. The shapeshifter stumbles into his quarters, assumes the form of Nancy, gives Bones a sleeping pill, pill rather, and then assumes the form of Bones. Act 3, Planet Side. Kirk and Spock figure out the shapeshifter's M.O., immobilize the prey with a hypnotic or paralyzing power, then do the salt suck. While looking for Bob Crater, they find Dead Green, notify the Enterprise, which goes on lockdown. On the bridge, they're putting together that there's a shapeshifter among them, though no one notices how flippin' weird Bones is acting now. <laughs> Kirk and Spock catch Bob Crater, who confirms the shapeshifter thing, says Nancy's been dead for a year, that the shapeshifter is the last of its kind, and likens the salt-sucking creatures of M13 to the American buffalo... An analogy Kirk's not totally hip with since the salt-sucking creature of M13 is killing his crew. Act 4. Senior staff, Crater, and the shapeshifter, still in McCoy form, McCoy form rather, discuss how to flush out the creature. McCoy says, hey, I've got an idea. Just give it some salt. 
an idea that doesn't fly with anyone else. Bob Crater says he can spot the monster no matter what form it's in, and it's decided that McCoy will administer truth serum to get the monster's whereabouts out of Bob Crater. Spock goes with them, but the monster knocks Spock out. Doesn't kill him, though, since his saline content is different than ours. Uh, monster does kill Crater, though, then heads back to McCoy's quarters. Kirk comes in to kill the creature. Bones, who's been asleep, won't let Kirk kill Nancy because that's still what he's seeing. Nancy goes to kill Kirk. Spock convinces McCoy that the thing is trying to kill Kirk. And with the utterance, Lord, forgive me, he shoots Nancy. You know, right after he sees that she's actually a big, hairy monster whose hands are covered with suction cups, perfect for sucking the salt and thus the life out of humans. The end. Though really, uh, it's the uh, beginning of decades of excitement and adventure and really wild things on board the uh, Starship Enterprise, which of course leads to, you know, Voyager and Deep Space Nine. And and, then there's a cartoon and a bunch of movies. (laughs) It's an interesting beginning. It is. It is. Um... The, you know, the salt sucker monster we only see for a few seconds at the end of the episode and in classic 50s B-movie monster movie style. They just do not reveal the monster at all. And then those last few seconds when uh, McCoy has to finally make that call, that's when we see it. And it it, it is an iconic Star Trek monster character. Um, I have to say that I don't know if it necessarily holds up that well, but man, is it impressive? Yeah, <laughs> you know? well, I mean, the whole time it's been it's been human or humanoid, human. Mm-hmm. I would say. I mean, there is the unnamed crewman that that uh, Uhura meets in the in the hallway. Mm-hmm. There are the, the mostly it's women, but yep. I, I think it's, I think it's only mostly women because it's mostly men on the Enterprise. It's mostly right. men with whom it's dealing. Um, Crewman Green, of course, it took the shape of Crewman Green when it was dealing with Yeoman Rand. And, mm-hmm. and just, you know, to get on board the Enterprise. I mean, when it has to be a male, it will be. But it's trying to appeal to, to the, um, the, the id. It, it's trying to appeal to what's going to be most attractive to the, the person it's going to be, its victim. Right. And, uh, and you know, with a probably nine to one ratio of men to women on the Enterprise, then it's going to be a woman most of the time. And let's talk about that id, because um, <laughs> Running you know, we're, rampant. We're, 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 we're making the case that, uh, that the monster is finding what it is that is most attractive. Therefore, it can be the most hypnotic mm-hmm. to its potential victims. And um, yeah, you've got a ship full of men, not that many women. And uh, it seems like in this episode, may- maybe it's a little weird because it is the first episode. And we haven't really got to know the crew that well. Um, but it seems like there's just a whole lot of undercurrent of rampant hormonal id-like activity <laughs> going on beneath the surface of this crew. Am I wrong? Well, I th- you know, and I wondered about that as we were as we were talking about it in preparation for this show. I think there are a couple of things that happen that that really space is nothing new for the people on the enterprise. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I, I used to, I, back in the day, a million years ago, I had a job where I was a walking courier in Boston. Mm. Okay. I know this sounds off topic, but it'll come back. Trust me. <laughs> I was a walking cur- courier in Boston and, and one of the people in one of the offices that I dealt with all the time, basically anytime I would complain about anything, say, Oh, but you get to be outside all day. And I finally had to explain, I go to 10 places every day. I take the same route to those 10 places every day because I have to get there in a timely fashion. Outside pretty much just becomes a hallway for me. 
Right. And so you think it's fun that I'm outside all the time, but it's not like I'm going to the common. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm going yeah. from place to place. It's like you going from this office to an office down the hall. And, and I think we're sort of being given the idea, not that space is boring, but space is a job, right? So, yeah, well, Uhura I mean, does say that she's bored. Uhura does say that she's bored, and being bored, her, her thoughts turn to something more interesting. I mean, going up to Spock and saying, tell me I'm pretty. I mean, she's really, <laughs> she's really I mean, because that's really what she wants. I mean, she just wants something that's going to take sort of the humdrum out of it. I mean, what's the cute little play on frequency? She says, like, the, you know, the, the frequency of the word frequency might drive her insane. Right. And of course, Spock right. being a humorless individual, which it turns out, Uhura thinks, by the way, that the reason that the Vulcans have no emotion is because Vulcan has no moon. Right. We have to look into that. Right. Yes. <laughs> we need yes. a team of scientists on that, I think. There I mean it's, it, it, these are close quarters, but this is a this is a this is a very comfortable working environment. Uh, to mm-hmm. the point that um Uhura stumbles across the guy in the uh, in the in the hallway and then tells Spock and the others about him later. But this is not part of the shape-shifting thing. Right. <laughs> Which right. is kind of fascinating. She's not saying it's not like somebody has said, there's a shapeshifter on board. And she says, you know, I saw this guy that I've never seen before. Maybe, you know, maybe that was the shapeshifter. And, it's and more he like, tried to make out slash strangle me right. in the hall after 10 seconds of knowing him. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's more like she just comes back to the bridge and says, oh, man, I got to tell you about this surprise date I just had two minutes right. ago. Right. <laughs> in the right. hall. And then later she's like, hey, you know what? That might have been the uh, that might have been the, the salt vampire after which we're... <laughs> chasing so yeah everybody everybody the crewmen are checking out yeoman rand there's a little flirtation between rand and sulu um you've got mccoy obviously is just love struck uh with who he perceives to be oh go on go on you want to say it surprise everybody who's the one person who's not trying to you know on the enterprise in this episode it's captain kirk for god's sake (laughs) Captain Kirk is as businesslike, he is as tough, he is as asexual as you can get. He is the one that is snapping everybody back into line. And you would think all it would take is for Captain Kirk to see a green-skinned babe in front of him and forget it. Game over. The ship is done and the salt monster takes over the universe. But he is the one who is just immune it's, all of this. it's weird to me that this episode was filmed so many episodes in, but was the first one shown. Was it always known that this was going to be the first one shown? Because there are no, things. They, they did not know until the last minute that this would be the first one See, that's, shown. That's crazy because there are things that happen in this episode that, that uh, to me, sort of, you know, set everything up. We're told that, that, that Spock, you know, displays no emotion. Mm-hmm. Without having it hammered home to us, we're told that that Bones and Kirk are friends in the very first scene because because Kirk is you know ribbing Bones a bit, giving him a little mm-hmm. ah, ah, we're going to go see your old girlfriend, you know that <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of just like laying the groundwork for what the show is going to be going forward, um, which I assumed was the reason. So, does Kirk have mommy issues or something? Because we get <laughs> to the planet <laughs> and this alien. That, that, you know, is whatever anybody wants it to be and, and, and is seen as whatever anybody wants to see, at least at first. And she's a, a handsome woman, as Kirk says, but, you know, she's not she's not 28. Yeah. And and you would think that of all people, Captain Kirk has got a pretty wild imagination <laughs> you think when it comes to the, women. You think she'd have the open sign on. I mean, exactly. I'm sorry, that's really, I mean, you know, or, or, or you know, 
or other things that would be horribly inappropriate to say. Yes, uh, Kirk. Yes. Kirk, not known for his chaste behavior. Right. Um, he sees Mother Superior. Right. W- when he looks at the Nancy Crater creature. Right. And then Bones does as well a little bit later. And maybe it's just because uh, the, the, there was some overhearing or understanding that it was unrealistic that, you know, it, it might be distracting if uh, Bones and Kirk constantly have this back and forth about how Nancy should look. So the monster then reveals itself, changes its mind, and then reveals itself as the older Nancy to McCoy. I thought that was a little bit strange. Um, why not just keep it there but but if kirk and mccoy are going to make a deal out of it then uh why not just just go with a more acceptable form um and i guess the monster had already decided that it was going to kill green right away so it doesn't matter how it appears to green uh darnell oh darnell darnell i'm sorry darnell was the first one killed green a little later on yeah Yeah. don't don't disrespect the zazlo dude no i will not the zaz by the way zaz was (laughs) his nickname i found this out on imdb Oh, good. Yeah, good, Zaz. Good. So let's, right. let's keep calling him Darnell, though, just for the sake of continuity. Sure. Okay. Uh, but, you know, there's so much attention paid here. And I, I thought the, the seduction scene with Uhura was a little out of place. Um, and I thought that her coming on to Spock was a little out of place. Um, though, the, you know, a little hint of that is fine. And you are trying to make these people real. And this is, um, like you said, their office. So yeah. office shenanigans will come up. Um, but it, it kept making me wonder, you know, are, are we sending a message here about either women as the temptation or just sort of sexuality, this, this seductive factor that is distracting everybody from their real jobs. And again, Kirk, you, you would think it would be Spock, but again, Kirk is the one here who is sort of immune to it and snapping everybody back into line. I don't know. I mean, they're good devices. I, I, when you first said that this is sort of a straightforward, you know, monster movie, uh, this episode... Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure I agreed, and I'm still not 100% certain I agree. Because well, I do know, think that, there's a lot of stuff that you can pull out of it, but there's not an overall – I mean, that's an important part of a monster movie or an important part of a horror movie. How do horror movies start? Four horny kids go off into the woods, <laughs> and then you know trouble ensues in some way. Right, um, right. As far as the seduction scene uh, with Uhura – I mean, it's a good way to advance the plot. And and he gets caught, as, as Syndrome says in the movie The Incredibles, he gets caught monologuing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he, she's mm-hmm. going to die, so he might as well tell her, oh, no, here's how it works. I, I read your thoughts. I figure out what you want most. I become the thing you want most. And and then, I, you know, he doesn't say I suck your salt at that point. Because, right. again, that, that really does sound kinky. It does. Yeah. It does. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the thing about this being uh, – kind of a monster movie take that that was the reasoning that the uh powers that be gave for running this episode as opposed to something else Mm. um uh the the second pilot where no man has gone before you know that that was kind of the reasoning there so i think that all these little things we're picking up on um the the real question is were they intentional or not and maybe george clayton johnson you know if you look at logan's run there's a lot of rampant sexuality in that as well that's true and maybe that was just sort of his style and he thought well if we're going to make this as real as possible we're going to include a wide range of the spectrum of human emotions and it just so happens that this one this monster can prey upon our 
you know sort of base desires and uh, and use that as a good way to uh, entrap them. Well, also remember the times that we're talking about. I mean, this mm-hmm. is not the 1950s television that we're talking about, and it's not television of today. I mean, television for the past few years, at least in the States, has been much cooler with violence than it is with, with, with sexuality. Right. But, you right. know, in mid-60s, we're waking up, right? Yeah. Sort exactly. of in that respect. I don't mean waking up like, ah, now we finally understand that right. that we like sex. But, I mean, we're. I mean, it, it, it's becoming a more... Um, less taboo, less verboten, yeah. let's say. And so even right. though, I mean, they're not, they're certainly not showing skin and there's nothing untoward going on. I mean, it's, it's downright pristine compared to a lot of what's on, probably what's on children's television today, yeah. to be honest. But, um, but at the very least you can talk about it and you can yeah. acknowledge that your characters have these desires and it may be their undoing. Yeah. At the same time, it could be a morality detail. I mean, look what happens at the end of, uh, looking for Mr. Goodbar. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, any number of other, you know, where people or or those horror movies with the teenagers that we talked about earlier. I mean, they go ahead and they give in to their want and desire. And what happens? Right. Some suction cup monster ends up sucking all the salt out of them. I mean, we can talk about sex, um, but still, uh, it's going to get you. Right. right. <laughs> In this episode, I mean, Uhura came very close to dying. Darnell. Can we talk about Darnell, by the way? You love Darnell, and I do not want to deny you the opportunity to talk about Darnell. Darnell is just an interesting – I don't know if Darnell speaks – and I mean no disrespect to the writer, okay, because you've got 48 minutes. I don't know how long actually the episode is, but today an hour of television is 48 minutes because you've got 12 minutes of commercials. Mm you got 48 minutes to tell your story, and so somebody's – you know, something's going to not be quite as intelligent as it could be, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, most of that in the first five minutes is Darnell. So here's what happens. They, they, land, <laughs> they land on the planet and they go into this house and, uh, and they're the people that they're looking for, or one of them, Nancy, the woman, Yep. at least as far as they know. And Darnell says, hey, you look like this hooker I know. Right. right. Now, he doesn't right. actually say hooker. He says, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you look exactly like someone that I left on a pleasure planet. Right. <laughs> I know That's it can't nice. be you, but boy, oh boy, do you look... What are you doing later? And so then <laughs> Darnell goes outside and they find uh, they uh, Nancy claims to have found him dead uh, laying yes. there. And, and it looks like the problem is he ate some of the, the planet's uh, native vegetation. It's like they brought a four year old. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, it looks like what happened was Darnell like saw a plant on the ground, put it in his mouth and right. died. And yeah. nobody is like. <laughs> <laughs> this surprises no one. I, and well, <laughs> I, I think I, I think after that uh, after that crack about the uh, pleasure planet, I think Foy was maybe just glad to see him go. <laughs> you know, I love that. I love. It's like that. we get, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that was Darnell. He would do that, wouldn't he? Um, yeah. 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 Told you we should have brought Green. Now we'll bring Green <laughs> next time. Things will be better next time. But I and I kind of like Kirk just very flippantly, like he takes the thing out of his mouth and he just throws it away, just tosses it on the ground. Yes. And he kind of got this attitude like, great, one more dead crewman. Exactly. You know? and, and Bones is like, yeah, maybe we could bag that because I might need to. Right. <laughs> I, I might want to check that out and see if that's. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to give it to anybody who says anything about Nancy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Update to the Mission Log Mission Log. Having watched the show and recounted some of the action, the crew of the podcast prepare to delve deeper into the morals and meanings of the episode. 
let's talk about the monster itself. Okay. Because we, we're given a lot of clues here about, um, you know, obviously in the, the convention of TV, you, you have to have, whenever you have a shapeshifter, you have to kind of indicate what form that shapeshifter is in now. So, you know, you said in your uh, show breakdown that McCoy is acting very strangely. Yes. And then all these other characters are acting very strangely. And I, I kind of liken that to the, uh, the, the, the Slee Stacks on um, Land of the Lost. It's like because their mouths weren't articulated, any time they were talking, they just had to wave their hands violently <laughs> up and down. So, um, so it's kind of like this. So you, you have to have the character acting very oddly so the audience can clue in like, oh, yeah, that's not McCoy. It's the creature. Um, so we know that the creature is a shapeshifter. We know that uh, it, it's pretty good at that, uh, at mimicking the, um, uh, the personal quirks. But, but what I like is that the creature doesn't have the knowledge that that character would have when it does the shape-shifting. So it's got to kind of sort of play along with right. whatever is happening, you know. Um, we know that the creature is the last of its kind. And, uh, and they make uh, – Spock makes this analogy – Saying that uh, sort of like the the buffalo that have been no, hunted. No, 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 I'm sorry, Dr. Crater. Crater does. Dr. Yeah. Crater does. Yeah. So, so they're they're like the uh, the buffalo that that uh, you know what he said one herd once covered three states, um, and then they were hunted to extinction. So here we have the last of its kind, the the sole remaining creature uh, that will now do anything to survive. Yeah, I'm not really down with his analogy though. So why is that? Well, because um, we practically ran the buffalo out of existence. People did. You know, mm -hmm. shooting them from mm -hmm. the back of trains and who cares right. because, you know, there are plenty of them. Right. Um, crater likening the Nancy creature to the buffalo, um, like you say, it's because it's the last of its kind. Uh, but the buffalo mm -hmm. didn't run themselves out of existence and the creatures of M13 did, it seems, with their willingness to deplete their reserves of salt or their inability to not deplete their well, reserves of salt and I, I think you're probably right i think that could very well be uh, there is one interesting detail that we're we're not given though so they're on this planet full of ruins that mm -hmm. are ancient but we don't know if those ruins were the the, the remnants of civilization of this creature or <clears throat> was there another civilization there the creature evolved this was the predator on that planet and wiped out that civilization or did that civilization wipe out the creature or some some interplay like that but we don't know because as you said they're there to uh, just pack up the ruins and ship them off right. to starfleet well wait there are a few things i mean i don't think mm -hmm. name a dead civilization here on earth sure uh the 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 mayans okay we well see the mayans okay we don't refer to the mayans as buffalo Right? No. I mean, it's not like... I'm, I'm not 100% certain that that... I'm still not 100% certain that works. Let me go back. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me, whether intentional or not, this, this episode could actually be a story about not depleting our resources. Uh, salt mm -hmm. here could be the buffalo, okay? And the creatures mm -hmm. could be the exploiters of the land or the buffalo hunters, whichever way you want to think about it. I don't mm -hmm. know that that was the intention, but that's, that almost seems to work better for me as the whole buffalo thing. We don't refer to people, you know, that, that no longer live as buffalo. So it seems to me, Crater may have decided, even though it's not stated categorically, Crater seems to have decided, no, these are animals, 
and this is not the civilization. Now, it's weird. The weird thing about the civilization is it's almost like a backdrop, but there's this like, <laughs> there's this idea that's very not Starfleet, it seems to me, of, okay, well, we found this ancient civilization. What we're going to do is pack it all up and send it somewhere. Right. And we don't even know where. I mean, we're, we're right. never told in the episode where. It's just that's what the creators are doing. It's not enough to be studying it. It's, you know, they, oh, you know, it's weird. They haven't been sending us stuff lately. It's yeah. sort of like, like, like Spock's thing. It's not like they're not sending reports. It's like, yeah, they're, they're not, they're not boxing up my ancient ruins. What's going right. on? <laughs> which is, which is very much not a Star Trek thing today. It's, a, it's an Indiana Jones thing. You know, of course. these belong in a museum. In a museum. Yep. But I don't yep. know. I mean, like, do we have a museum planet? And do we do that with every ancient civilization that we find? <laughs> Pack it up. Because <laughs> we might want to live here someday, and we don't want all this old crap laying around. I mean, I don't right. know. I'm confused about that That part of it. But right. I, I, it doesn't seem to me that – I don't think, I don't think the, the, the creatures are, are, the, are the source of this civilization. It, no, I, I don't of, think so either. Yeah, yeah, you kind of wonder what happened to them. But, yeah, their inability – they're more like us, it seems to me. The creatures are um, and that they'll just, you know, go ahead and use up everything until it's gone. And then the second they get more, I mean, she starts going through through um, through crewmen like yeah. popsicles. I yeah. mean, just, you know, there's no thought of, you know, now that there's salt. Hey, maybe I should regulate. Maybe I should, you know, slow down. I think well, they're, but- I think they're animals. I don't think they're the and not that we're not. But I mean, I think they're animals and, and not the not the purveyors of the civilization. But, you know, here's what's interesting. It, it, the creature killed Nancy. It kept uh, Bob Crater alive. Right. And Crater, uh, all this time, over what, five years, has just been doling out salt tablets to no. the creature. No, it only so killed, it the, only the creature kill- could very well have just killed Dr. Crater and taken that big bottle of salt and had a party. That's you know, true. Gone true. crazy on salt. So it, it, it is interesting to, to try to figure out, well, if that's – the way that it's been acting so far, why then when the Enterprise shows up, uh, does it start killing off crewmen unless it's a reaction to uh, Crater's sort of, uh, uh, you know, his distrust of the Enterprise crew. So if he sees them as, as a threat, then the sort of symbiotic relationship that they have, then the monster sees them as a threat as well. Yeah, um, it's. I mean, well, I mean, there are two things there. First of all, mm-hmm. the creature only killed Nancy a year before we get there, right? According to Crater, so he hasn't been doling out salt for five years. It's just been uh, a year. Yeah, you're in right. the last year that he's been yeah. doing that. Um, yeah. I forgot the other thing that you said. Darn it! Because <laughs> this this was really going to be the one. This was going to be the one where people are going to say, "Well, I'm glad we listened." Right. Uh, right. Oh God. <laughs> Uh, was it the mention of the uh, the, the monster's sympathy to uh, Dr. Crater's uh, distrust of the crew? No, I remember, though. No, it's it's the whole feast or famine thing, right? If you know <laughs> you've got one Twinkie left and you're on a desert island, you'll probably, you know, you'll probably cut that Twinkie up and make it last for 30 days because Lord knows they will. Right. Um, because, they'll, you know, they'll last that long. So he, she's got Crater and Crater is still doling out the salt. And apparently there's just enough intelligence to know, well, I kind of need, you know, that guy. Yeah. Otherwise, I, I got nothing. Um, but then it's like you've had this one radish or this one, you know, Twinkie, and then suddenly somebody takes you to a Golden Corral, yeah, <laughs> or, or you know, or a Sizzler, or some right. other place that's got like a lot of food. And you don't really care about the quality because oh my god, there's so much of it. And you just eat and eat and eat. Maybe that's you know that's kind of the thing too. It's been a feast or famine, you know, kind of thing. It's been famine for at least the past year. 
And I'd just like to mention that only on Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, will you hear the Enterprise crew likened to a sizzler in space. <laughs> Golden Corral. <laughs> Golden Corral. Yes. Uh, I don't know who that's... I insulted more, actually. I mean, obviously, they're never going to advertise because I just said, you know, it's crappy food, but there's lots of it, so you eat. So, okay, so now I've just bashed those two restaurants and uh, the Enterprise, the flagship of the uh, of, of, of Starfleet, of, uh, yeah. right, the flagship of the Federation. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, there's lots of them, so that's good. But yeah. it's not really great. <laughs> so so I, I want to look at one other thing here that the um, I, I thought was interesting. When, in the final act, when they're all seated around the, the conference room table and you've got the salt creature as McCoy mm-hmm. – um, Kirk obviously is protecting his ship and the fact that his crewmen keep dying. He's got to put an end to this. And uh, all they're trying to do around this table is figure out how to lure the creature out and then kill it. They they have to kill it. And it's Crater and McCoy who are the ones who raise their hands and say, "Um, wait a minute. This is the last of a species. It should be maybe captured but but studied and we, we can't just make this thing extinct. Um, now, McCoy raising his hand, this is the creature raising right. its hand, saying, hey, how about not making me extinct here? Right, you except know? without saying it's him. Right, right. Um, and this is a very Star Trek thing. This is something that, that we will see over and over again in, in later Star Trek is kind of the, the attempt to respect and understand that which is alien rather than the immediate reaction was just to kill it. Now, in this case, I think Kirk is pretty well justified. Right. Um, they, they cannot detect any motivation of this creature other than to go sucking salt out of everything that it can find. And you've also got Dr. Crater putting up roadblocks every chance that he can. Um, but I, I, I think that Crater and McCoy slash the monster have a point. Because this is an intelligent being, even if its intelligence is uh, uh, maybe limited at this point to feasting on the buffet that is the Enterprise. You know what's really funny about that? You're making it sound very um, philosophical, which I know is you know part of what we do. But as soon as that <laughs> happened, as soon as that happened, I, I, I saw Pee Wee Herman. Uh, you saw Pee Wee Herman how? I remember Pee Wee's Big Adventure when he knocks uh-huh. over all the bikes outside of the biker bar. Right. And they take right. him inside and they're trying to decide what to do with them. And Pee Wee says, I say we let him go. You know, I mean, that's, that's pretty much. <laughs> that is that moment. I that mean, is you're, that moment. you're arguing yeah. for the for the for the creature's intelligence. And, and certainly you would want to. Hey, maybe they could, you know, uh, discover Talos four and, and drop the creature. And, drop you the know, creature off there. And the menagerie right. just don't get it too close to Nancy. Uh, not right. Nancy. Uh, Vina. Excuse Vina. me. I'm, yeah, I'm, please, I'm confusing please, my. Please. Yeah. Yes, my 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 vixen of the week. Uh, self-preservation is not necessarily a sign of intelligence. My dog, hmm. God bless him, jumps at every loud noise. And the reason he jumps at every loud noise is because he wants to be ready to move in case that loud noise is coming at him. And he's, right. he's smart for a dog, but, you know, he's not he's not sitting there thinking, okay, now the next time a loud noise comes, how is my, what's my best course of egress? You know, I mean, he's, he's, mm-hmm. he's thinking, hey, I'm a dog. Hey, there's something loud. You know, so I wonder if we're not. I mean, at least for the creature's point of view, I wonder if we're not maybe being a little too generous as far as its intelligence. And then well, there's kind of the same thing. I mean, look, I'm not I'm not arguing for uh, running animals into extinction or running any race into extinction because mm-hmm. that, that would be bad. And they have a name for people that do that. And, and it's not pretty. 
Um, at the same time, though, it, it's hard to trust either the creature or, you know, uh, Bob Crater, uh, partly the creature, because the creature is going to argue for self-preservation. Why wouldn't it? And you can't really trust Bob Crater because he's like, well, it killed my wife, but it's all I got. So I'm going to go ahead and be cool with it. Because eventually, well, I mean, it, it, the way it should have run, the way it should have gone is as soon as all of that jar, that jar of salt was done, um, the thing that's been posing as Nancy would have come after Bob, which right. it actually, which it eventually does. Yeah. So I don't know. But, but, but I, and I thought that was a really interesting moment is that uh, it, it, at the end of that argument, um, when Crater is making the case to, uh, to capture and not kill the monster, um, Kirk basically calls him out. He, he says, look, you know, you're living in this fantasy because Nancy is gone and you can't deal with it. Um, you're living with the illusion that Nancy is there and that there is a creature that needs you and loves you and needs your love for it. Um, and it, it, that harkens back to the cage. It's this false reality that he would rather live in, even though it's ultimately dangerous to himself. Yeah. And 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 ultimately, yeah, Bob meets his well, not his maker, but a maker, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Or a destroyer. I, I don't know what the best way to put that is, but well, let's talk about the creature meeting its maker, because that that is the big dramatic scene at the end there. And uh, McCoy, of course, has been knocked out most of this time. Right, uh, he's taken a sleeping pill, and uh, that's what allowed the creature to. Uh, assume his image and wander around the ship. So they end up back in McCoy's room. Uh, the creature now posing as Nancy is trying to get McCoy to defend it. Right. Because McCoy has no idea that it's a shapeshifter at this point. Right. Um, now, uh, Kirk, we, we actually see this process finally. After we've only seen the aftermath, we see this process where Kirk is hypnotized he he is physically immobilized by the monster and uh, the monster goes after him it's all very plain very clear to everybody what's going on here and mccoy is watching it all go down but he cannot bring himself to uh to shoot the creature uh spock wow would you call that an emotional reaction <laughs> spock, spock jumps in and double fisted starts just trying to punch this monster just knock it out i forgot and, that part that's right yeah, and it flings spock across the room which is right. kind of uh, kind of interesting to watch and uh mccoy's got a phaser spock says shoot it it's killing the captain and uh mccoy says lord forgive me pulls the trigger and then we have a dead monster on the ground. Well, we see a dead Nancy first, and then it morphs back into the salt creature on the floor there. Well, he also he sees her as a monster before yeah, momentarily, he pulls the trigger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, one wonders if, if maybe if <laughs> there's another argument for evolution, if the monster mm-hmm. has been a little bit better at holding that illusion, <laughs> then we might, we might have a, an enterprise full of no crew and one really, you know, salt-hungry monster. Right. When Khan finds him. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> now that would be a whole different series. Hey, here's something else for the Mission Log Mission Log. Was it worth watching? Did it say what it wanted to say? And was what it wanted to say worth hearing? So this is that weird part where we say, so what have we learned this week? And the thing is, it's not... There's, it, I mean, it's a good show. It's a good show. It's a good story. 
and we'll get to whether or not it stands the test of time in a minute. But it's not like, you know, episodes or it, th- this is not an after school special episode of Star Trek. Some of them, you know, some of the episodes of Star Trek and certainly we'll be hitting them over the over the course of the next several weeks, months, years, fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them have a very, you know, a theme straight through. This is an ecological show or this is a, you know, a, a friend's a friend forever kind of show. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, as you pointed out in the beginning, this is a monster show. This is yep. a, this is a, there's a bad thing, there's a good thing. And, you know, how do we bring things back into balance? And yet there are, there are issues I think that you can pull out and say, well, here's a good point that was made, but, but I mean, there's not one over anything. Agree or disagree? No, I do agree with you. I mean, I, I, I think that it's an intelligent monster movie, you know, mo- yeah. monster story. Right. And, and I, I really, you know, I go back to that scene in the boardroom in the, in the conference room, because uh, like I said, any other monster show up until that time would have said, oh, it's monster on the loose. We have to go kill the monster and then they go kill it or they don't. But right. at the very least you, you have a couple of points being made here about um, extinction, about uh, what is our responsibility right. toward animals, wh- whether they're intelligent or not, whether they're dangerous or not. Um, isn't it better to study it than to kill it? It just happens here that it looks like we're going to have to study it once it's dead. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so I, I think that's all very interesting. And, and I think the, uh, as we talked at the top of our show about the, the sexuality in this um, – I, I feel like they're maybe not making a point here, but I, I like it in the historical context that we are loose enough to treat these characters as real people with real desires. Um, so all of these were very interesting to me. You could take that sexual element and say, like, well, you know, you need to focus on the job rather than on your hormones. Uh, but I think that's a little too simplistic, and I don't think that that was an intention of the writer here. I just think it's sort of an interesting side effect yeah. of uh, of what's happening. It's also not really fair, too, because you're dealing with a monster or creature or you know force that can drill into your brain without seeming to, and figure right. out what's going to be the sexiest thing for you. Right, right, and 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 with that said, I don't think that is the the moral or the point here. That's just. No the most interesting conceit of how the monster can take over. Yeah. I don't, I just, I don't think there is one moral or point. That's kind of the thing. Like, like you talk about the sexuality on the enterprise that to me Mm -hmm. in in a large way is humanizing the enterprise. I mean, you know, most of our science fiction up to that point, or most of the science fiction that I think of Dale Arden was hot and you knew that Flash Gordon liked Dale Arden, but you didn't, you know, there was no, there was no acknowledgement of that. I mean, that was, that was really eye candy for the audience. I mean, all of those uh, characters, um, uh, Rocky Jones, Space Commander or whatever. I mean, all of those characters are sort of like, you know, sealed in plastic, you -hmm. know, there's no humanity to them. And there's a great, it's kind of neat that the first time we meet Uhura, she's like, "Ah, I'm in space. (laughs) <laughs> communication from another planet blah 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 <laughs> right. like me you know yes. <laughs> i mean this yes. is this is man in space and and that's you know warts and all this is man yeah. in space <laughs> which is kind of neat nobody fat though i mean the, the overeating is apparently not a problem in space 
Like well, him, I don't like know. There, there, there was that crewman that they beamed down, the uh, the, the older gentleman who got killed. And I, I think he was uh, – he should maybe avoid the galley. Uh, know, a little, you know. Well, that, that won't really be a problem for him anymore. No, no it won't. Yeah, it nice, won't. Nice making fun of the dead. Way to go. There was one <laughs> thing that um, – and this – I'm assuming that this is going to be something that's going to turn up from time to time. And this likens, uh, harkens back to what we talked about in the cage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, hell and heaven and God and the mm-hmm. devil and religion and mm-hmm. – Star Trek's ability to just treat that like, you know, oh, yeah, that's a thing we used to do. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in the cage, uh, Captain Pike is thrown into hell, and, and, and except they never say it's hell. And the Telosian says, uh, a, a fable you heard in childhood. Right. So there's a neat thing. I mean, evolution is just it's, – it's a thing. Evolution's just a thing. As far as uh, Star Trek is concerned, we get a quick mm-hmm. hit of it in this episode. When Spock's attacked by the creature, it does not kill him. And Spock explains, and immediately, actually, because I haven't seen the episode in a very long time, immediately I thought, wait, is the creature Spock now? But, of course, he wasn't chewing on his knuckle, which is the visual right. cue that we get all through the episode of right. who's, the, who's playing the creature right now yep. or who's the creature playing right now. Uh, Spock explains that his race evolved from a different ocean than humans, so his saline content is not sufficient for the creature. This yeah. is not a big part of the show. It takes maybe 10 seconds. Maybe 10 seconds. But just like what the hell's the story for children hit in the cage, evolution's a fact. Spock doesn't say, perhaps because our race has evolved in different places. He doesn't, he doesn't, I mean, evolution's not a theory Yeah. in Star Trek. He just says, you know, here's how it is. And, and I don't know if this is something that we're going to hear all the time or if it's just something that I'm picking up on and trying to pick out, you know, some of the more salient points of Star Trek, but I love the fact that, I mean, aliens can work together, first of all, so something that's completely different than you, you guys can actually get along, so there's a great, you know, theme. And then also, by the way, all that stuff, you know, where, you know, from the Crusades up until, well, the future, uh, mm-hmm. for, for, for the people who were writing Star Trek at the time, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be very divisive. We get to a place where that's not, that's not really a thing. That's not something we right. have to worry about anymore. And right. yeah, I kind of appreciate that. I do too. You know, I, I, uh, McCoy's reaction. Lord forgive me. Lord uh, forgive me. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say it here. I'm going to say it. You have to take it with a grain of salt. Oh, look oh, at you. Uh, because he, he, here's why. I, I, I've always felt like McCoy. McCoy is sort of the the earthier, you know, kind of old school doctor, and and he may have a tinge of this. He may have held on to some of his religious beliefs, but I also feel like Lord forgive me may just be the appropriate reaction like he, he he's still confused he still doesn't know if he's doing the right thing and um you know even an even an atheist can say oh god <laughs> you know when when you know when it happens or can say bless you when somebody sneezes um and i feel like that may just be the reaction uh that he has whether or not it, it indicates his beliefs we don't know but maybe we'll find out more about his beliefs as we go along with the show well, you did it, so I have to. I, I'd say McCoy is the salt of the earth. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I, I know we're, we're close to the end here. Does the episode stand the test of time? Um, as, as a piece of entertainment, um, a, as a, a show with a good story and, and good acting and good production values, yes, overall. I think uh, the messages... Uh, I think the messages get a little bit muddled, but what's nice is you can kind of go through and pick out what you like. But uh, there's not a uh, there's not a moral at the end of the story necessarily. 
Or you can listen to us pick out what we like and you save yourself the trouble. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think that just about does it for this week's uh, this week's edition of the Mission Log. Agree or disagree? I agree. I think that does it. We yeah. learned that uh, Vulcans are freshwater. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe it was too salty. We don't know. Maybe you said the, salt, the saline content was different. Uh, there you go. Maybe you maybe go. Nancy was like, oh. Oh, that's just, wow. I mean, I yeah. like salt, but oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to hold off on that. No, I just ate like, you know, five minutes ago. So next week, we will put Charlie X in the mission log. Until then, have a cup of salt, but please enjoy it responsibly. Final update for the Mission Log Mission Log for this week. Some of the music for the Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Time now to readjust our sodium levels. We will talk to you again next week. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.